Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Competition never waits. Take your gear on the go with a custom pack built to protect it. Because any place can be an arena. Game on. The Tumi Esports Capsule. Available on Tumi.com and select Tumi stores. Done. Done. On to the yeah. next one. Are you ready? <laughs> oh my god, sir, I'm a type girl already. <laughs> Why not, man? Nicest guy in rock. I can't believe we talked about him on the show recently and didn't say nicest guy in rock. I was really upset. <sighs> I know. Um, it's been said so much. It's it's implied. For sure. Yeah. Even even the ironic delivery of it is implied, I think, without saying it. I know, but there's still that extra layer of, oh man, we could have said it. We didn't say it. I don't know. Okay, so listen, you good? I know you're fucking crazy busy. Um I feel like yeah. I feel like 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 like, like the, the baton has been passed, you know. I'm I ain't doing great, but I'm doing better this week. Are you all right, my friend? <laughs> I'm fading. I'm done with the year. Um I'm tired. I'm on my last legs. I need a kind of Christmassy boost at some point, but it'll come. I'm looking forward to end of year lists. Um Yeah. I'll get there, Dave. Okay. All right. It's good, though. But listen, I don't say it often enough, pal. I love you. I love you too, man. My name is Dave Hanready and there will be no encore. This is my third attempt at recording the intro to the show to episode 247 on the Headstuff Podcast Network. Craig Fitzpatrick is live in Leak Slip, as always. Yeah, and I enjoyed the first take, I must say. You went with a kind of hello thing. I don't know, it was I kind of I was... quite scandy. We were just talking about our trip to Bergen. And yeah, it went quite scandy and cultured. I liked it. It mixed things up a bit. Uh, the monotony that is now. Trying... I was trying for something kind of robotic, like I was like going for like 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 an automated voice thing. Hello, this is Dave, and it's a music podcast and that kind of stuff. I don't know. I don't know if it works. What does work though is this program. Thanks for tuning in, and thanks to everyone, by the way, who uh, has had us, you know, aloft as their top podcast of the year in their Spotify Wrapped lists, which was went out today, Wednesday. We're recording a day early. Exciting scheduling conflicts. 
be damned. We'll move the show accordingly. It's all good. On this episode of the show, lots more Spotify talk and a review of the brand new Miley Cyrus album. And off the back of that, best cover songs. How are you feeling about this week's lineup, Craigo? Uh, I was intrigued by the Miley record. Um, we've talked about her quite a lot. I think we're fans of just her in general. Um, interested to see what her next steps were. So we'll discuss that for sure. And then cover songs is, yeah, it's just like an evergreen one. It's one that we were, it was like top of our our big long generator ideation doc that we have for top fives. And it was one of the ones where we're like, we'll get, we'll obviously get to it eventually. And eventually is now. So that one was obviously a hard one. Um, I had to put loads of parameters on myself um, for sanity's sake, and I guess we'll talk about it later. Okay, we definitely will. With that level of enthusiasm as well, I'm looking forward to it. So. <laughs> I guess, yeah, it's on the running order. We're, yeah, we're legally obliged we're scheduled to... scheduled to talk about it, yes. It, it, it will happen. What will also happen is uh, next week there'll be a brand new episode of No Popcorn, our film and music offshoot with Dave Higgins and Norma Howard. Bill and Ted Face the Music, discussed at length. That'll be dropping next Wednesday on your No Encore feed. Before nice. that, though, um, an exclusive bonus for Patreon customers. Um, finally, after so much talk about it, to get us in the mood for end of year season, this Monday, for patrons, we will be dropping our exclusive Lost episode, the songs of 2019 that Craig and myself and Dahi recorded in Dahi's house around this time last year, and then there was a technical snafu, which results in the episode being immediately deleted. I had to record the show from scratch the day after by myself, and it was a, kind of an infamous episode. Do myself which, and Dahi's voices as well, which I don't know he, how you managed. You remembered quite a lot of dialogue. I mean, all the world's a stage, my friend, so <laughs> everything else is just vaudeville. But it's a whole thing, and uh, this episode, I think, is fun. It's funny because I almost lost it again and I was like, this is what? getting out of hand. Yeah, no, because like Dahi retrieved it, of course. He managed to like go full on Mr. Robot and just save the whole thing. Sent it across to me ages ago. I accidentally deleted it and I thought if he's deleted it as well, it's actually gone and this is going to be a problem. But I do have it. I mean, it's going to go up on Patreon on Monday. It's patreon.com slash no encore if you want to help support the show. Coming up to Christmas, buy us a present in the form of supporting the show and patron. Uh, that's a pretty good thing to do. Uh, and it's the first, actually, of two um, Patreon-exclusive episodes we're putting out this month because we will be recording our questions and answers episode, our listener questions and answers, later this month. Plan is to drop it around Christmas time. But in the meantime, like I say, here's your schedule. Next Monday on Patreon, last episode, Best Songs of 2019. Wednesday on the regular feed, No Popcorn. And next Friday, our last regular show of the year, and Craig won't even be here for it, will you, Craig? I'm going on my holidays. Uh, yeah, Where annual leave, baby. <laughs> to a slightly different room in my house. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not looking forward to it, but um, it has It'll to be, be taken, Dave. It has to be taken. <laughs> You'll have a great time. I can't wait to hear that um, last episode, by the way. I will never forget both Dahi's face when he realised that we didn't have the episode initially, was horrific and then Dahi's reveal that he had salvaged the episode it was quite something so yeah a Christmas miracle for sure there's also a bit where I almost kind of half predict the coronavirus so look forward to that uh, also listen before we crack into the news uh, last week on the show and thanks for the good feedback we had our top five best and worst landfill indie I thought it was really fun when I enjoyed it but you know, like, week on week, it can be hard to get everything in that you want to. I know there was one song in particular that Craig wanted to hear, but it didn't come up. So let's have a blast of, uh, and listen, I know Landfill Indie, you know, like it's all jangly guitars. You don't necessarily look for great lyrics, but sometimes you do get rewarded, like these fine young men. 
good. So good. What a song. That's uh, The Others. And the song is called William. Craig, why is it near and dear to, I guess, both of our hearts at this stage? It's such a trashy piece of, like, <laughs> lightweight landfill indie from a horrendous band. But you can't deny that hook. I don't know. I wish I didn't like it. I wish it didn't constantly get stuck in my head, but it does. Um, yeah, yeah. We I can't believe we didn't mention it properly on the landfill indie show. Um there it is in all its glory. And when I, <laughs> I saw the running order and he'd snuck in that, um, kind of apropos of nothing, I was delighted. I'm, I'm glad, man. I remember uh, one of many nights crawling back to your gaff in Leakslip from the Workman's. And I remember you giddily putting this on because you were like, you've never heard of the others. And I was like, no. And you're just <laughs> hold, like, on, oh, man. hold on, hold on, hold <laughs> on. I did not do a, this band, this song will change your life thing. I did not for the fucking others. Gorgeous. <laughs> can headphones placed upon my head. It was great. <laughs> nah, it was more of a, this song is ridiculous. I think you'll find it funny. But listen, it, I don't think the others probably popped up in a lot of Spotify end of year data season lists. Um, did you check out your Spotify wrapped today? Uh, along yeah, with the rest I had of the world? a brief, I had a brief look uh, just before I started work. So I don't have all the stats in front of me, but I was, I'm kind of surprised, like the others could have cropped up because there was a few inclusions where I'm like, I feel like I have this every year where a song will be there in my top five. I'm like, I don't think I've heard this song this year. Kendrick Lamar's All Right was, I think, my number four or five. And I've not listened to that song in about three years. So I don't know what was going on. How did you find it? I'm quite suspicious about the whole thing. So I'll give you my my top songs, right? Um... The Weekend Blinding Lights at number five, Code Orange underneath at number four, Mushroomhead seen it all at number three, Niels Fram and Them at number two, and Slipknot Unsainted for the second year in a row is my top song of the year. Now that one is accurate <laughs> because I could not stop bumping that for a very long time. But even in like my top artists, I've got Health, Mushroomhead, Slipknot, The Weekend, and Run the Jewels. So The Weekend is in both of my lists. He's there at number two. Last year when Spotify did this, and then they also gave you your of the decade stuff, The Weekend was my artist of the decade, and I'm like, this doesn't make any sense to me because like. I was I, my big weekend phase was to, was 2015 2014 like I mean like you know post trilogy coming into Beauty Behind the Madness era that's when I was really really fucking into him and since then it's been less and less and I found him to be less and less interesting as well so I'm not convinced by this and I've seen other people as well put up theirs and say stuff like I've listened to Blind Lights like five times how is this in my top five I'm pretty sure. The weekend is gaming the system here. There's something weird going on that is not. Uh, yeah, above board. I also I also had the 1975 in my top five, which I've I've not listened to them that much. Like we reviewed the album, and I went back to some of the previous records, but it can't have been enough quantity to earn a place there. So I don't. Yeah, I don't know either. Um, I did take. I don't have a connection at the moment, so I can't uh, access my list. But I did take a screenshot of one baffling thing as well. If you want to take a look, Dave, can you read that? Your biggest podcast, podcast binge listen was Liveline. What the fuck? <laughs> Joe Duffy beaming out at me from the Spotify rap thing. Oh my God. <laughs> there was more details on it and it was something like, you listened to um, 19 episodes in one day. Congratulations. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> what and do you know what hell? I think it was? Do you remember that whole um, Dublin Mint scandal, which was just hilarious? It, basically, Dublin Mint are like sending out coins <laughs> to old people that are like, you know, to commemorate the 1916, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it's five grand, please. That was a whole <laughs> saga for a week, right? And I think I was like flicking through episodes to find one of the funny clips and they just counted all of that as a binge, which was probably like two minutes. Either yeah, that, that or make just a lot like sense. bang into Liveline. 
I mean, like, no, Encore was in my, it was like number four in my top five podcast, which I was like, yeah, oh, Dave. But however, to be fair, I usually like Adam sends us the MP3 directly and that's when I listen to it or I listen to it on Pocket Cast. But, you know, we did well. Like I say, thanks to everyone who put up their list and had us in there. That's very nice to see. And uh, yeah, it's just a nice thing, I suppose, even though it is, of course, a cynical and impressively slick marketing campaign that Thank has paid off it. very well for Spotify. I mean, it must be... This is great. Uh, you know, is there a term for this, by the way? Like, I mean, like user interface marketing or something like there must be some organic thing. Well, it's, or- yeah, it's organic promotion. Yeah, it's basically like we're doing the work for them. And yeah, it's it is obviously cynical. They're using our own data, our valuable data against us. Um, yeah, I don't know. How many years has it been going for? It's probably the third or fourth year. And I feel like enough, right? I don't know I don't if know. I need this every I, year. I don't need Spotify I, to tell me more about myself. Well, I <laughs> love why I meditate. The, <laughs> I I love getting the top 100 songs that you played the most, even though, again, like, there was... I mean, there was a song I played for, like, three days straight about a month ago, and now it's in there. And I'm like, well, is that really reflective? And even the podcast that, like, I was listening to, I was like, is that reflective? I mean, just because you, like, happen upon one that you like and you kind of binge all the episodes does not necessarily mean that, like, it's a regular occurrence. And the whole weekend thing, I don't know. Um, I will say that, like, I've seen, like, a lot of nonsense genres people were getting as well. And, like, my my top genres was pretty fucking embarrassing because it was, like, um, indie, it was, like, rock, indie rock, alternative metal, um... And then there was so another. Was mine. I had yeah, but I had hip hop. I think instead of metal, but the rest was very bland, like indie rock, guitar rock, just like what? Yeah, I had uh, I'd pop and I had soundtrack, which is great, but also like Run the Jewels were like my top artist, but there was no hip hop. I'm like I listen to a lot of fucking hip hop. I, I I really think that there's something genuinely not quite there in it. I think I wonder are they tagged as like because it's Run the Jewels? Maybe they get like a secondary tag of like some rock genre that just because I did see I had some crazy number of new genres I listened to. Um, but it was like more than the number of new artists I listened to. So they must be doubling up and like, they must have loads of tags obviously for every song. So that just all goes into the mix. Yeah. They were like, you discovered like 335 new artists this year. I was like, did I? You listened to 491 genres. I was like, I don't think I could name you 50. I mean, like, then yeah, there's also yeah, like, yeah. also alternative metal. I don't know how, like, that almost makes sound like I'm fucking like, I'm alt-right and I'm listening to fucking Hatebreed in the gym or something, who I don't think are not right band, by the way. It's just a joke Higgs made once. <laughs> also, um, like I say, people got nonsense genres. I remember a few years ago, there was a Stomp and Holler. I remember getting that and I remember tweeting about that. But like this year, the nonsense genres that I saw some people getting are Chamber Psych, Float House, com- Compositional Ambient, Escape Room. How the fuck is that a genre? Like, I don't, like what on earth is is in that? Anyway, the point is, this is all news because, like, of course, the day before it came out for everyone's individual data, um, there was all this kind of pressy stuff about how Billie Eilish, The Weeknd, and Bad Bunny were among Spotify's most streamed artists of 2020. Following hot on the heels of them were Drake, J Balvin, Juice World, and uh, a few others. Yeah, I don't know. It's just like... It's not very surprising. The most streamed song of the year goes to the weekend for Blinding Lights, which of course is a song from 2019. It popped yeah, up in the Guardian. That was best my number one as well. <laughs> was it? It's my number five. <laughs> it was my number one and The Box by Roddy Rich, which is another massive song that came out last year. That was my number two. And I'm like, I'm so fucking, oh, so basic. Basic Craig yeah. over here. Well, speaking of, the Joe Rogan Experience takes the number one slot for the most popular podcast of the year globally, which is very depressing. (laughs) Well, it wasn't in my top five, thank Christ, because I do occasionally check in on guests. (laughs) (laughs) I think I had a a last podcast on the left, and uh, you talking, talking heads to my talking head. I think that was my number two. 
That makes sense. Well, look, the most streamed artist globally, number one, Bad Bunny, Drake, J Balvin, Juice World, The Weeknd. Most streamed female artist globally, Billie Eilish, Taylor Swift, Ariana Grande, Dua Lipa and Halsey. Um, yeah, I mean, Dance Monkey by Tones and I was the second most streamed song globally. What the fuck is going on there? Now, people are just trying to get through 2020, uh, whatever floats their boat. I mean, I'm not going to judge. You know, I might judge there's, everyone for using Spotify, including myself, but the music choices, that's grand. There's so much weary resignation to your voice this week. I love <laughs> it. A man in need of that holiday. It's great. Um, did you watch the Billy Eilish interview? Stick on the interview? others again. Stick it back on. <laughs> Adam, did I watch Adam, the Billy? You, no, no, no. Adam, <laughs> would you stick on the others again, please? Craig needs it. I'm not even joking. <laughs> Okay, okay. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's perfect. Okay, yeah. so Billy Eilish did the Vanity Fair interview again. Do you remember this? Back do you know what the, the concept game. is? Yeah? I do. She's been doing it for years now. Uh, I've kind of I've kind of had it with it. I saw it come up and I went, ah, oh, come on. I was like, I don't know if you, don't keep doing it. Well, we this. were very it's excited about the first repetition because it was a, a very novel idea and it was quite well worked. And the kind of, the, you know the huge chasm between where she'd been when she did the first one and then we're talking about me being jaded and weary how she seemed after a year of like megastardom which I haven't experienced as yet yeah 2021 is going to be a big year for me but it's, yeah that was incredible coming, don't worry, yeah but I don't know if I need an annual one yeah so for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about Billie Eilish did an interview with Vanity Fair a sit down video thing when she was 16 then one year later they did the exact same interview with her when she turned 17 and asked the same questions. They played the other ones back and so on and so forth. And it was, it was really fucking cool. It was very novel. It was very interesting at the time. And a lot of attention kind of came there and her personality came across. It was very, very well done. And yeah, there was a night and day contrast between where she was going. And then they did it again the following year. And it was like, oh, cool. But now they've done it again. And I'm just like, I haven't even watched it this time because I'm just like, I just kind of feel like you're slightly running the gimmick into the ground. Um, but she's talked about different stuff. She's 18 now. She opened up about her identity, using her platform for good things. The tumultuous year that has been this one and how she's working on new music. Uh, she says she currently is working on new songs and she has 16 in the bank at the moment. She says she loves them all. So I guess mega album coming. How would you feel about that? She's released a couple of singles recently. They've, they've all been really fucking good. Like she hasn't, I was going to say, she hasn't put a foot wrong. So I, I very much trust her ju- judgment at the moment. And um, yeah, like... I'm not going to really hate on them like taking the kind of time or getting that kind of um, FaceTime with her when they can. If it's a yearly thing, um, all the better for them. But yeah, yeah. She's just kind of been everywhere. I d- like it doesn't have the impact it did where it was like so different. But um, certainly music wise, yeah, hit me with 16 tracks, hit me with all you've got for sure. Um, yeah, she bigged up the strokes. The new album "Normal" is one of her favorite albums of the year. And she talked about uh, <laughs> she talked about having a period of identity crisis and feeling like a parody of herself. She says it's just you forget I'm literally eighteen. It's funny that I'm expected to offend myself and stick with that. I don't know. I'm just trying different things out, different ways of living and styles and personalities, hairstyles and clothing and shoes. I'm just trying it all out because I'm a growing fucking girl, which is totally fair. Now, the next news story I've written down, oh my God, shut up, is the headline, which is not a reference to Billie Eilish. Who is it, Craig? And what's going on here then? My dear, dear Nick Cave has taken to his red hand files uh, once again. There's a new edition where he connects with fans, answers their questions, uh, kind of gives his musings um, on hot topics of the day. 
which of course of late has been a lot of like cancel culture stuff and separating art from the artist. And he is talking about Fairy Tale of New York. <laughs> Just when that wave, annual wave, not to get weary again of like, I don't know, nonsense uproar about the song being slightly censored. Uh, Nick Cave has waited in and said he's totally against the censorship. Um, he interestingly he says he would have been fine with the the um, word in question being bleeped, but he thinks changing the line completely alters the meaning and just kind of takes away from the narrative impact of it. Um, and yeah, like I think he's kind of like arguing with himself because his whole point seems to be like defending why the song is written that way and its artistic worth. And my point would be that no one is saying that Shane McGowan shouldn't have written the song or have those lyrics. The whole point is that BBC Radio is slightly amending it so like their wide listenership isn't like, you know, on the airwaves they're listening to that particular line. It's kind of like... Like, he goes into the whole, like, <laughs> talking about, well, actually, this character is, like, you know, not a good dude, and he's got his own problems, and it's like, we've heard this every year since the song was released. <laughs> it's kind of like saying, like, <laughs> like Reservoir Dogs should be shown as, like, the Sunday afternoon film, because actually, you're not supposed to, like, empathise with Mr. Blonde. It's like, what? I mean, no. I'd watch that on a Sunday afternoon, probably, but I will say that, um, like, you're probably rolling your eyes yourself there listener because you're like lads i thought you already put this to bed and don't worry this is the last time we're going to talk about it but i just figured that nick caves you know i love like the, like ways in it's like fuck off um, and i'm just yeah. like i figured it was weird even like just before we recorded start recording the show i was like are we doing that new story and you're like no nah. you're like i'm disappointed in him i want to talk about it but uh, so i'll give you the direct quote because uh, it's just, he, he starts off by saying, now, once again, fairy tale is under attack. I mean, Like an RPG on. wizard or something. Fairy tale is under attack. <laughs> <laughs> the idea, Nick Cave here, that a word or a line in a song can simply be changed for another and not do it significant damage is a notion that can only be upheld by those that know nothing about the fragile nature of songwriting. The changing of the word in question for the nonsense word haggard destroys the song by deflating it right as at its essential and most reckless moment, stripping it of its value. It becomes a song that has been tampered with, compromised, tamed and neutered, and can no longer be called a great song. A song that has lost its truth, its honour and integrity. A song that has knelt down and allowed the BBC to do its grim and sticky business. Oh, and he goes my on, word. Like, what, what are you doing, Paul? He goes on and, and on. And then also, like, at one stage, he's asked about his own, or he references his own, quote, problematic lyrics, and he says, flawed as they may be, the souls of the songs must be protected at all costs. So, look, listen, I'm not going to dismiss him outright here. I understand the idea of changing the artist's original intention, thus equals tarnishing it. But as you say, Shane McGann himself has often said, no, it's fine. Like, that's yeah. I don't have a problem the with it. The artists have no problem with it. The changed line is a line that Kirsty McCall delivered herself. So arguably, like, it's another legitimate version of that song. It's arguably better than just bleeping it. It's something one of the creators, like, gave them. Um, so yeah, a strange one. Maybe he's just like, you know, they're not playing Red Hot Chili Peppers that much on the radio anymore, which was like his big kind of bugbear for years. He just needs something else to rail against, I guess. Well, I was just about to say that the whole thing reminds me of that Great Simpsons moment when <laughs> Krusty the Clown is like, you know, hey guys, you know, the network's got a problem with some of your lyrics. And it's like, our lyrics like a children clown. No way. I know, I know. But like, you know, what if here when you say, you know, what I got, you got to get and put it in you. What if it's uh, what I'd like is I'd like to hug and kiss you. And yeah. then they're like, oh, that's much better. <laughs> you would not get away with that nowadays. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> hug and kiss um, 
Another great debate continues, though. Limp Bizkit guitarist Wes Borland was in conversation on a podcast, where else, and was asked about where Limp Bizkit fit in during the rise of new metal. He said a lot of it sort of developed all at once. Corn, Deftones, Deftones really tried to separate themselves from everything, which was the right move for sure, because they're able to maintain mm. longevity. So Deftones, of course, are often thrown into this whole thing of like, are they or aren't they new metal? Their own fans tend to be like, no, they're fucking not. I think Borland makes a fairly cogent point, but at the same time, I don't think Corn are the ones talked about not having longevity. I saw them in fucking Canada last year doing like promoting their latest album, but playing a greatest hit set. And it was big venue. It was full. They've never gone away. Like, I mean, there are a lot of bands yeah. who have managed to, I guess, you know, survive the era, I suppose. And like Corn are certainly like in that bracket. They're kind of put up there as one of the fathers of new metal. But I guess Deftones, I mean, like, you like Deftones and you're not necessarily the biggest new metal guy I know. I mean, has this ever even intrigued you for half a second? I find it all very dull. <laughs> like, even though I put it Deftones, in the you know, whenever we talk about new metal, I always say, um, well, at least it gave us Deftones. And then I have to kind of say, uh, I know that it's not really pure new metal or blah, blah, blah. Um, I take his point. I take your point on Korn. I guess what he's getting at is that Deftones have a, more of a relevance, I guess, even critically. I mean, you'll see Deftones reviewed on Pitchfork. I don't think anyone's kind of looking for the new Korn stuff. They have that huge fan base, which is like, we'll see them through for decades to come, I'm sure. And they're obviously still a massive band, but... Deftones still feel very much part of the conversation when they release new stuff. Um, and yeah, it was like, it was the right move, but I think the right move was just Deftones not making new metal music. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, yeah, Deftones had it right when they did something completely different that had nothing to do with what we were doing. That was like uh, brilliant. <laughs> Borland I do was have asked- a soft spot for Limp Bizkit though, I must say. Well, my, you know, for sure. Child, like, I know you're a huge fan of End Together now. I think Rearranged oh, is great. I think I think Significant Other is a great album by any band. But Borland was asked if Limp Bizkit can one day reach their previous heights. He said, I can't imagine we would. So that's the end of that. Uh, he said, I don't really have any <laughs> like expectations that, yeah. <laughs> because I found that I have no idea what people like and don't. Where I'm at right now is play a few Limp Bizkit shows every year. There's a record that's been in the works for a long time. Not at a place where I don't think it's going to get finished anytime soon. Maybe it will, but I'm not sure. So yeah, it's like, you know, Maybe. Does anyone really care? Even Wes Borland? Probably not. What's going on with uh, Young Thug and Andre 3000, by the way? Yeah, Andre 3000, who we've talked about recently on this show, and is now, he's approaching kind of sainthood status in hip-hop, I think, for sure. Uh, Never really a bad word said about the big guy. Uh, He's obviously an elusive character, but, you know, a real artist. Seems like a good dude. Does a lot of collaborations, you know, gifts, guests, um, verses to up-and-coming artists. Young Tug um, has a totally different take on Andre 3000. He was on T.I.'s uh, Expeditiously, which is spelled Expeditiously podcast. Um, T.I., of course, most recently talking about his daughter's hymen. Um, but I think he's bounced back from that cancellation and he's now talking to Young Tug. And yeah, T.I. was basically just saying that um, he was talking about Young Tug um, appearing uh, on the cover of his mixtape, Jeffrey in a Dress. And he was like asking about that, like quite daring decision uh, as a hip hop artist to do that. And Young Tug kind of brilliantly was just like, uh, he actually just, I just threw it on because it matched a pair of shoes that I was wearing, which was great. And then T.I. kind of says, well, you know, Andre had previously done that kind of thing. What's your experience uh, with the MC? They're obviously both, both Atlanta people. And um, yeah, Young Tug was just saying, listen, I only did this for my generation. Uh, I can't rap you two Andre 3000 songs. I ain't never paid attention to him, never in my life. 
uh, T.I. kind of hit back and was just like, what, you're missing out, man. And at this point, uh, Tug was basically saying, uh, he evoked Elton John and he said, the difference between Elton John and Andre is uh, Elton John likes to kiss ass and Dre likes his ass kissed. So basically, he's like, if you want to collaborate with Elton John, he's very supportive of artists. The whole vibe around Andre 2000 is just like he wants to be praised, which I think everyone's kind of kicked back against. I mean, like that is not his um his kind of attitude whatsoever. Andre's publicly praised Young Tug himself um for no real reason, just because he likes his music uh, in the past. And yeah, I can't quite figure it out. I, I feel like this is a thing where Young Tug is constantly being compared to Andre 3000 from the same place. Maybe he feels like he's in his shadow and he's just like, do you know what? Fuck Andre 3000 and fuck the attitude of people to Andre 3000. But I don't know. It's a weird one. Would you Who's give a, Andre the benefit of the doubt well, on this one? I, I, I wanted know. to ask you, uh, in particular as a big Outcast fan, whose side are you on here? You're being quite diplomatic. Get off the fence. Uh, I'm uh, I'm Outcast. I will always side with Outcast. I do love Young, young Tug. I, I think I've recommended him to you before and he's got a lot of great mixtapes. He's been hugely influential. I think maybe he is a bit slept on. Um, but... Yeah, lashing out here. Definitely not in the Christmas spirit. I, I can't no, be trucking no. with this kind of thing in December. I don't know. Well, uh, we'll wrap up the new section with further shots <laughs> being fired, shall we? By Halsey, just a kind of a Grammys follow-on. We had a big Grammy section last week, which we don't often do, but I figured it was, I figured it was volatile enough, you know, to kind of get into. But Halsey um, has given out about the whole process. She says the Grammys are an elusive process. It can often be about behind the scenes, private performances, knowing the right people, campaigning through the grapevine with the right handshakes and quote unquote bribes that can be just ambiguous enough to pass as not bribes. And if you get that far, it's about committing to exclusive TV performances and making sure you help the Academy make their millions in advertising on the night of the show. Perhaps sometimes it is, but it's not always about the music or quality or culture. I wanted to get this off my chest. The weekend deserves better uh, and Manic did too. Perhaps it's unbecoming of me to say so, but I can't care anymore while I'm thrilled for my talented friends who were recognised this year. I'm hoping for more transparency or reform, but I'm sure this post will blacklist me anyway. Industry politics, Greg, never gets old. Yeah, I'm thrilled for all of my um, colleagues and friends that are being awarded these meaningless baubles that they just bought and paid for. Um, yeah, I, I, pre- I pretty much said the exact same quote, I think, last week about like, you know what? It's not all about the music, the Grammys. And you're like, wow, Greg, hot take there. So I'm glad to get some backup from Halsey for sure. Well, you know, to be fair, I figure whether it's the history of the Grammys or whether it's getting into an artist like Halsey and, you know, her background in discography and all these things, we tend to just go to Wikipedia, don't we? Which is my way of saying there's a podcast about that now on the Heads of Podcast Network, and it sounds a little bit like this. The World According to Wikipedia is a podcast that pops the hood of Wikipedia and invites you to take a look inside. Each episode, we will talk to someone from the Wikimedia community on topics like why are only 18% of biographies about women? Can editing Wikipedia be a protest or activism? And what is it like for the communities working on the 200 plus Wikipedias that are not in English? Subscribe on your podcatcher of choice and follow us on Twitter at world underscore Wikipedia. Yes, that was The World According to Wikipedia, available now at all your local news agents. Now, it's time for an album review. I guess this is like one of our last big album reviews, or album reviews in general at all, for the year, Craig. It's been an emotional run. It's your last proper album review we've had for the entire season of the of this of this show. How are you feeling, man? This is the last time you get to hyperanalyze an album. The last time I'm going to throw to you for a primer. This is really fucking exciting. Oh, God. I feel kind of nervous now, to be honest. 
It's a lot Jesus writing Christ. on this. And you please. I haven't had a lot of time to prep this week, Dave. And in fairness, I, I haven't listened to it. I, <laughs> okay, okay. Right, well, listen. Fuck it. Like, we're here now. We have to do it. Get yourself a cup okay, of coffee. Okay. Perk the hell okay. up. It's Miley Cyrus season. The album's called Plastic Hearts. This is a banger. It's called Midnight Sky. <laughs> So good. Oh man, the song that will not be denied. She's gone uh, rock, Dave. <laughs> let's let's try that again. This song is by Miley Cyrus. It's called Midnight Sky. That's kind of, uh, I guess, Pat Benatar by way of Kavinsky. It's the fantastic Midnight Sky, a towering fucking belter of a song on the album Plastic Hearts by the artist Miley Cyrus. Craig Fitzpatrick, do the intro. Yeah, so I guess Miley Cyrus came to prominence in like the, the wake of the Libertines, just doing guerrilla gigs around Hackney. Oh, wait, that's, that's the others. No, Miley Cyrus is, um, <laughs> <a> currently, <laughs> currently the second biggest country crossover star in the Cyrus, uh, household, um, or the ranch that I guess they all live on in Tennessee. Um, she's got grounds to gain, I think, on her dad, Billy Ray, after his, um, famous and fabulous partnership with Lil Nas X on Old Town Road last year. Um, but yeah, of course, prior to that, in more recent years, the spotlight's been far more on her than her old man. Um, so yeah, you know, Miley, she came to people's attention as a Disney star, uh, as Hannah Montana, doing kind of adolescent um, pop rock stuff to supplement the kids' sitcom. And she then seemed like destined maybe to re-engage with her country roots. Um, she definitely has the pipes for it and the character. And yeah, I guess the affection for that heritage and that kind of songwriting. Like people that want Miley to do a certain kind of music always hark back to her 2012 covers. Um, I think like the Backyard Sessions it was called or something. She did lots of like standard songs and just knocked them out of the park. Really good covers, as we'll talk about on the top five. Um, and people thought, okay, that's nailed on. She's going to be, she could be the next Dolly Parton. Um but she's been kind of seeking her own musical identity ever since. She had a dramatic swerve from there into the bangers era, which um, brought monster hits uh, like Wrecking Ball, but also like photos of her smoking sativa and um, like twerking in small outfits and uh, Terry Richardson photo shoots, I seem to recall, which, you know, to mention monsters again. And yeah, I think the Nadir was probably that 2013 VMAs performance where she was grinding on the far, far, far inferior performer, Robin Thicke. Remember him? Probably a low light. Um, 
We talked recently uh, as well about the album she made with Wayne Coyne and the Flaming Lips, um, which is quite experimental and I think maybe ahead of its time. Uh, Miley Cyrus and her Dead Pets. It's long, it's flawed, but I think it's kind of great. Since then, though, she's been trying to, I think, recalibrate a little bit. So um, her last album was 2017. It brought kind of a return to some of those country tropes, a um, bit more polished of a sound. The songs themselves, so, and I, I didn't really get into the album too much, but from reviews, it seemed like the concepts and the lyrics were a bit paper thin. Um, this is another genre hop. It's mixing country with kind of rock, new wave, 80s new wave. Um, you know, the Pat Benatar thing you mentioned, Dave, uh, Joan Jett appears. Um, and yeah, she's back doing kind of almost grown up barroom Hannah Montana stuff. Um, there's a certain sheen in professionalism, but I think some of that honesty and like the insight um, we've seen elsewhere from her. Plastic Hearts, did it do it for you, Dave? To a degree. I, I very much enjoyed my first few listens of this, particularly I think it was last Friday morning, like post midnight when I was wide awake and I was like, oh, fuck it. I'll, I'll, I'll just dive in now. You know, I'll just give it a go straight away. I'll give it like a 1am listen or whatever. And I was very much like, well, that flew by. I enjoyed that on the surface. First impressions were good. The more I returned to it, you know, I think it had less and less to reveal of itself. Um, there's a lot of goodwill out there from Miley Cyrus at the moment, which is strange in as much as she's previously been a bit of an enfant terrible, right? So, you know, you mentioned like that kind of the CV there and like obviously like, you know, the, the nadir of it, like whether it was just constantly fucking sticking her tongue out and being like, oh my God, she's edgy. She's, she's so fucking She was on two and a half men as well. I, f- I forgot that bit. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's just no good for anybody. And I mean, you know, she's made some kind of very ignorant comments about hip hop, which I'm sure she later walked back and apologized for. But she was also like, you know, savaged by the likes of Sinead O'Connor uh, kind of unfairly. And I think ultimately there was definitely a time when it felt to me that she was very much being punished for um, being a woman who was unafraid of her sexuality and unafraid to kind of try and break those boundaries in America in like the mid tens, which in and of itself is still something that, you know, the world is catching up on a long way to go. And so I think that, you know, there was definitely like some ammunition you could throw her way for being like a bit obnoxious and like, was the music really adding up to it maybe? And, you know, it's just those kind of growing pains, I guess, of being a former Disney star and trying to be something different. And maybe it was a bit too edgy at times and it didn't really believe in it. There's probably more conviction with what she's doing now. And it seems like kind of people are are ready to kind of hail her as like a new Stevie Nicks or a new Dolly Parton or something approximating that for the current generation. I think she's got the chops personality wise. And she's obviously someone who has been within the industry for so long that she's a veteran at the age of like She's still something ridiculous, like 28 or something. I mean, like, I, yeah, I, I, I think don't she's quite like 20s for sure. It feels like she should be older, right? Because it just feels like she's been like this established brand of a thing for so long. Even going back to a song like Party in the USA from what, 10 fucking years ago? That's a belter. Um, so I like Miley. Um, I think she's got a lot to offer in terms of, like, like, like I say, just in terms of like knowledge and insight and experience. And I wanted to like this album more than I ultimately did. I do think it's a bit too sheeny. Um, I think it's a bit too paper thin. There are moments. Um, I mean, like Midnight Sky works in that regard perfectly. I think it's a fabulous pop song. It's fucking incredible. It's so good. It's infectious as hell. It carries you from the first second and it doesn't look back, which is great. Uh, the closing song is called Golden G-String and you kind of read the title and you're like, oh God. But then it's like, oh, it's actually a really beautiful, introspective ballad about her life and what people expect of her and the kind of relationship that, you know, the devil and angel on the shoulder stuff and how she's been treated by the public and treated by the media. 
and you know how she's managed to kind of rise above that but also is looking down on it with a critical eye of her own which is absolutely valid um but in between i mean like like you've got some good stuff like you know like like there's some stuff in here which is like works quite well as like it feels of its time in the in that it feels like a pop song from like 2003 Britney Spears era which is good like good surface level kind of well realized stuff but like first of all and this isn't the first time I've said this this year but the features don't just add nothing they take away from it I mean you got three features on this you got Dua Lipa uh, a song called Prisoner which is totally fine but also just feels completely indistinguishable from anything else Dua Lipa has done this year uh, then you got the other two tracks, which just feel really kind of like, you know, the young pretender roping in the veterans to, you know, mix the generational thing. And it's like, I don't know who this is for. A song called Night Crawling with Billy Idol, which is just very generic. But the real clunker, I think, is Bad Karma with Joan Jett, which has... Oh, one best song of the album, man. <laughs> are you out of your fucking mind? This song has got like, one of the most song. annoying vocal motifs I've ever heard. And I find it I really hard that. to go it's back great. to. I thought it was a really good hook. <laughs> Can That's you do an impression? Can you do an impression of what that is? Because it's kind of difficult and it's very breathy. Uh, it might like... be a bit too sexual for people, particularly if they're <laughs> listening at work. I guess it is. I guess it, it. I guess it is kind of repurposing some kind of an orgasm as like a fucking instrument or something. But like, I just found that to be way too obnoxious and annoying. And ultimately, I don't know. It just felt a bit like it just felt a bit stock. Like it just kind of felt like, well, this is just generational stuff, and it's it's more kind of who I can get and passing the torch and rather than writing a good song. So they didn't work for me. Um, yeah, it just felt at times a bit too polished, a bit too produced, a bit too kind of stage managed or something. She's still really interesting, but I think she's actually buried by so many of the decisions on this, everything from the Sonics to the, even the fucking album artwork to the guests. I just feel like, Something got lost along the way, and what got lost along the way was kind of Miley Cyrus, which is kind of hard to do. Yeah, I think she's found some purpose on this record, but it's she hasn't quite found her sound for sure. And they're certainly not the songs of her career, I think. Hopefully, um, even looking ahead, <clears throat> there's some good stuff here, but I, I did find um, it was a record that was always playing catch-up because it comes racing out of the traps, and it's quite loud, and it's got that maximalist thing. And... Um, you think that would suit her voice, but I don't know if it does quite suit her. Like some of the opening tracks reminded me of like kind of vaguely irritating pink vibes. And I don't know if the production overall helps it whatsoever. It does have a lot of sheen. It feels a bit vacuum packed at times, um, quite tropey as well. You know kind of what they're going for with every song. Um, and yeah, I, I found that with the features as well, where it's like, it felt like the songs were her ideas of what those artists would do as big pop songs so she felt it necessary to get them on board um the joan jett one being bad karma which i actually think was a bit like out there and that weird rhythm thing did a similar it was like the the box roddy richards thing where i just thought that that little hook just really worked for me and i can imagine it maybe being irritating for people but at least it was something different and i thought joan jett added something whereas the billy idol one it's like here's your kind of like glam us punk um billy idol 80s song so we'll just get billy idol there who doesn't really add much except for like presence and like his i guess permission to do it and prisoner 
yeah, it's kind of, it's got those spooky synths. It's a bit of fun. It's it's kind of reminding me of like Rockwell's Somebody's Watching Me, which is itself kind of Michael Jackson, but not quite. Um, but yeah, Dua Lipa is kind of just there because it has to be a big hit song, right? And she doesn't add a huge amount. But I felt as the album went on, um, she opens up a bit, um, depth comes into it. It's quite a triumphant closing. I, I agree that I slightly despaired when I saw the title of the closing track before I listened to it. And it's like, yeah, um, aside from me really liking Bad Karma, it's probably the best, most accomplished thing here where it's like, it deals with quite complex stuff in a really interesting way. Um, great resilience to it. Um, it goes a bit, you know, kind of has a few digs at Trump, which is just quite played out at this point. But that aside, I, I felt like it was like, it leaned into her kind of country roots as a writer, do you know what I mean? Where it's just quite clever lyrically. It says a lot about her, her own story um, and it's defiant and it's cool. And it feels like she ends the album basically saying, you know, you're trying, people are trying to get rid of me. Uh, I could have gone the other way. I think I'll just stay. And by the end of the album, I was like, yeah, I, I'm glad that she's staying. I think she's got a lot to offer. I think a lot of these sounds are the right direction for her, particularly like A Midnight Sky and A Bad Karma, <laughs> I must say. But yeah, the shadow of kind of the influences, the um, collaborators, the features loom large to the extent that even on Midnight Sky, I'm like, this is kind of just like Phil Collins in the air tonight. And then she's sorry, like attacked sorry, onto is the there- end. Is, is there something wrong with that? Like, 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 it, sounds, it sounds like there's a slight disparagement in the tone of voice there, but that couldn't be. It's great source material and the song is good, but then, you know, when you stack them against each other, like at the end of the album, she's she's covering songs um, as bonus tracks and um, she does like a mashup of, of this and Edge of 17 and you're kind of just going, Edge of 17 is better than anything else here and like she doesn't have that those old timers quite yet. So I think when she tries stuff from those eras, you're always going to compare and contrast, but I do think she's capable of delivering those in the future. And yeah, throughout it all, like she's a lot of personality. Um, she's the best thing about the album. Um, and she seems to be really into it. It's not just her trying to get things back on track. It's not just her phoning it in, which I think is a big improvement on what's gone before. Yeah, not to rag too much on the features or anything, but I will say that it reminded me of Fall Out Boy's Save Rock and Roll album from 2013, Ooh. which has two kind of, you know, veteran heavy hitters coming in in the form of Courtney Love for one of the worst tracks you'll ever hear. And Elton John uh, on a Fall Out Boy song, which is the title track of that record, which like simultaneously works and does not work at all. It's that kind of like really over super earnest thing. And you can see what they're going for. It's a complete mess, but there's something kind of like I guess noble a noble failure. You're kind of like, yeah, fair enough. And I just thought of that every now and then when I just thought of these. Um, this is her seventh album. So if she hasn't quite found the definitive version of herself just yet, but is getting there piece by piece, I don't know, man. I mean, like, what do you what what do we want from Molly Cyrus? Like, what do we want her to be? Is it fair of us to even ask that question? Um, you know, like I think ultimately if she's playing a set because you're like, she doesn't quite have the songs yet. While I agree with you, I think she can certainly play a show and like the likes of Wrecking Ball, which is a song I don't really like, but people obviously would go wild for it. Oh yeah, yeah. Where is she going essentially, I guess? And where can she go? I don't quite know. Um, Personally, I I like her kind of dead pets experimental thing where she's doing like psych rock and it's just looser and you feel like this is what she's actually listening to. But she's been on that kind of career trajectory since she was a kid of like, you know, she's got the strong Nashville industry roots 
the, you know, the family around her that are expecting her to kind of stick to those orthodox ways. Um, kind of on a major label. I feel like she, she she has to compromise quite a bit at every step of the way. And maybe, do you know, like I'm always an optimist and I'm like, I'll say about artists um, and a lot of big pop records, like it's not quite their masterpiece, but they might get there. You know, obviously not many people make masterpieces. So maybe Miley just won't be that artist. Maybe we'll get great songs here and there. Maybe we'll get a Midnight Sky and that's great. Or, you know, four tracks on um, Dead Pets that I'm like, this is actually brilliant, check them out. And that can be enough every couple of years, I guess, for sure, um, as a pop artist. Uh, the majority of people probably are expecting her to go, you know, do do a kind of Roots album. Just do your kind of like Taylor Swift folklore kind of album because she she's probably got the writing chops. She's definitely got the performing chops. Um but I'm not sure, like, that's her family kind of business, do you know what I mean? I'm not sure that's really what she wants. Um, so I'm not sure. But I think she's getting closer to doing exactly what she wants within those structures. Um, and that's a good place for her to be, for sure. Uh, yeah, I'd give this maybe... It's probably a 5 out of 10 for me, but that that seems a little harsh because I think there are good songs here and I like the direction. Yeah, I guess it's a 5.5 from me. I mean, it's it's hard to put a score on this one because it does kind of almost feel like you're kicking it, but it's not that it's a bad album at all. I think it's just a bit kind of not quite there and she remains very compelling and there are a couple of moments here for sure, but ultimately kind of came and went, um, which is also probably reflective of the time of the year. Next week on the show, I'm not even sure what album we're going to do because there's fuck all happening, which is kind of good because it means we can focus on end of year stuff, which is great. But it also puts you in this kind of weird bracket of like, yeah, not much is happening. Um, so yeah, that's your last album review of the year, Craig. Well done. <laughs> and did I get through it? Did, did I do a good job considering I didn't hear the record? <laughs> You did a great job. Yeah, you faked it, you faked it really, really well. Uh, now his yes. watch has ended. All right, listen, um, it's top five time and we've done worst covers. I was sure we'd done best covers, but apparently we haven't. So that's good. Uh, it's best covers. It's as simple as it sounds. Both Craig and I are on the side of good this year, this year, <laughs> this week. Yeah, this year. This year, In I general, hope as well. Yeah. Overall, <laughs> that's our message. Be good. Be excellent to each other. We're on the side <laughs> yeah. of the angels. All right. So best covers. You mentioned a lot of parameters that you're on. Tell me what kind of mind game you played with yourself this week. I just picked, you know, the best covers. Yeah, so I didn't want to go too obvious, which might have actually been the way to go, but there's obviously songs that are near perfect kind of renditions um, that are just like so stuck in our psyche that I'm like, I don't know how much I have to add. We've talked about them so much, so I just left those alone. There's definitely like a, I won't spoil stuff, but there's like a holy trinity in my mind that we might discuss when we get to the end. But that aside, I kind of steered clear of live stuff. I tried to go for like studio creations just because I felt like we're not just going, okay, this is a real belter. Uh, it's a great performance. It's kind of almost like karaoke at times. Um, and then what I was looking for, I think in general, was stuff that like altered the DNA of the original source material and made me either look completely differently or listen completely differently to the original or not need to listen to it again at all. I wanted kind of like songs that find fresh meaning in the song, uh, switch it up entirely. Um, don't just do a fateful, perfect rendition. That were that, that Those were my perimeters. How did you approach it? You were just like, okay, these are five I like. <laughs> uh, I, I also you tried to... the same route. <laughs> <laughs> I also tried to steer away from obvious ones, but I also found myself being like, 
I mean, there are some covers that you just cannot overlook. So no spoilers or nothing, but you can probably guess one or two of mine. We'll see how it goes. Uh, but I also try for some left to feel stuff too. And that's where we're going to start this week, Craig, with my number five. indeed it's the other masked metal band that made into my top five artists on spotify unwrapped it's mushroom head with crazy a cover of seal seals crazy from uh, many many years ago from 1991 this is mushroom head's cover from 2003 it's on the album 13 it was actually like kind of a hidden bonus track and i fucking adore it because number one i love mushroom head and number two i love the song i love the original i think crazy by seal is one of the best songs ever put out into the world by anybody i fucking is it even the best song by seal we always have this i don't agree i I, I don't agree it's kiss Kiss from a rose man no it's not no it's not kiss from a rose is fucking (laughs) i can beg it to a kiss from from i I fully agree look kiss from a rose is fucking fucking, even over zoom amazing the magic uh kiss from a rose is exceptional right but yeah. crazy Crazy's I think is also exceptional i think crazy is just a little bit better um so yeah mushroom head are of course a mass experimental metal band who get lumped in with slipknot all the time even though they sound a lot different and i love them to bits and they, this isn't their first rodeo in doing this well actually i think it might have been they later would do a cover of adele's rumor has it in much the same style which wasn't quite as effective but still kind of fun i'm okay with like this to me isn't um, you know, Travis doing Baby One More Time and taking the piss. This to me is like, you can have a bit of fun with the cover because it's not expected of you. It's not your style of music normally. But like, again, as I always say, the best songs are pop songs. And you take a song like Solitaire Unraveling by a band from like Mushroom Head, and I would call that a pop song. So they're trying to pay reverence and respect while also having a good time. It's absolutely not a piss take. Whereas, you know, you could look to the Alanis Morissette version of this for a particularly watered down rubbish cover, which I thought never oh, yeah. had any life Imagine. to it whatsoever. Um, so I think it's nice. I think it's nice when someone does something a little bit different. Like, And I guess the whole thing about the cover is it's difficult, right? Especially now, I think, because we've been flooded, I think, in the last kind of 12 to 15 years in particular, especially with like YouTube bedroom covers with an acoustic guitar and lots of lads doing sad versions of pop songs, which at first seemed kind of novel, but then became really fucking irritating and really fucking fast. So I think there's room for this kind of level of levity, and it's just a stomp, which is great. But again, it does draw from, like I say, an incredible song in the original, even if I completely understand where you're coming from with, with Kiss from Rose. But Crazy, which unfortunately did not go to number one in the UK, um... I think it. I think it's got legendary status. Seal was talking to Q once, and he said, "I had no doubt about Crazy. I always thought it was a potential number one, even though it never was." It's the first song I wrote on the guitar. The first song where I said everything I wanted to say in a concise way. Before that, my songs had been too long, but as soon as I wrote the hook, I knew it was a potential hit, and it was. Yeah, but it wasn't played ten minutes into the credits of a Batman film, was it? 
well, I suppose that is the that is the mark of of, of yeah. true no, taste. No, it's a I great suppose. song. Um, I wasn't really aware of this cover, but it totally works because it does. It fulfills my um, criteria. So well done. And I think it does that thing of like if you actually look at the lyrics of Crazy, um, they tap into something that are there in the lyrics that you don't hear in the original delivery. Uh, those lyrics are kind of built to be banged out for sure. Um, so yeah, it's a fresh fold, a uh, really fresh take. A good number five to kick us off. All right, my number five. Um, we'll get the bl- blood pumping before we get all teary again, which is the story of my life. This is another <laughs> total reimagining. Um, but again, I think very in tune with the original meaning and ethos of the song. Have a listen. Yeah, that's The Fall, uh, the late Marky Smith and his early 90s lineup doing Lost in Music. Um, one of many, many lineups, as he used to say, uh, if it's me and your granny on the bongos, it's The Fall. And yeah, this was uh, Sister Sledge, disco classic, Noel Rogers and Ber- Bernard Edwards from, I think, 79. Uh, the original's great. I don't stick it on too much. Um, and while I think this is like, this unearths something maybe darker and quite otherworldly about the original, it's still very like heady and opulent. And, um, like I, I was looking at some, just, um, there's, there's a website called the Annotated Fall, because of course there is, that just dives into all the lyrics and stuff. And this is a total lyrical reimagining. And there's kind of references to, um, like the palace of excess is the palace to access. And it seems to be maybe... Um, a satire on kind of club culture and hedonism and stuff. That's one reading of it. But actually, every time I hear it, it just feels like a Marky Smith fever dream of him being quite um, quite authentic and quite open about his pure love for music. Like, I imagine this guy who's like a curmudgeon at best, you can imagine him growing up in a rainy Manchester, being a bit of a social outcast, um, feeling quite alone as a kind of teen, getting into his early 20s, starting the fall, this song coming out and like the kind of buttoned up, um, maybe quite aggro Marky Smith, young Marky Smith at the time in his like Mac in the rain, secretly in his heart having this sister sledge song that he will return to that speaks to him (laughs) as he kind of makes this like, he makes this devote, like he devotes himself to music. He fucking quits the day job. He actually has that passion, that kind of romance in him, um, despite being this like down to earth northerner, just to be like, do you know what? Fuck it. I'm with Niall Rogers. Let's be fucking fabulous. Let's just make music our lives and lose ourselves to it. And it's, yeah, it's, it's totally contagious. It's like a fucking fever dream. You can't really make out what he's saying half the time, but that adds to it. It's just kaleidoscopic, fucking great riffs being brought in. And yeah, it does it for me every time. So do you think it like it's it's that level of hardcore sincerity? Like we're gonna commit to this so much more than you possibly think that we would, that kind of unlocks the Oh, it's actually secretly a great song because they didn't like because like they simultaneously gave it the reverence that maybe it deserves, but also I guess like not compromising what they're doing, but also not being afraid to kind of, I guess, just look a bit not silly. Do you know what I mean? Like 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 in terms of 
I would like yeah. letting the guard down a bit. I suppose is that kind of like does that is that half the battle won or is it just yeah no, it's a great so. song a great band that like that alchemy alone is enough. Yeah, I, I think they let their guard down a bit on this one. Or he certainly does, but he had like a, a great track record with covers for sure. Um, There's a ghost in my house might have been their biggest song, and that's a great reimagining of um a, a kind of R and B song and he done King songs and stuff. But yeah, this stands out as. He just sounds quite jo- joyous, even from Marky Smith in it. And when he's kind of doing that, like, trademark yelpy thing of, like, he's kind of going, hide away. And um, it just feels like it's it's really his place of refuge. Um, so yeah, I think that's why it works for me. But every time they cover a song, it just becomes a fall song because they can't do anything straight-laced. So, yeah, that's also why it works for me, I think. Um, an interesting band. All of their covers are great, but this is the one that does it for me. All right, number four for me, another case of an American band looking to the UK, this time the 1980s. Why, yes, that's No Doubt covering Talk Talk's It's My Life. The No Doubt cover is from 2003. The original song is from 1984, a great year for the world, because that's when I showed up. But ultimately, also good because this song was out there too. Um, Yeah, New Wave, great song, bit of a classic. Um, No Doubt. The story behind this one is that like they were, I don't know if they were contractually obligated to do it, but they were bringing out like a Greatest Hits band or Greatest Hits album or something. And Gwen Stefani was working on her solo album, they felt they didn't have enough time to properly record new stuff. So they were like, why don't we do a cover? Um, It was needed to promote the record, I guess, just like something new out in the world. And they went through a couple of options. This was one of them, of course. Uh, A Depeche Mode song, A Question of Lust was also in there. Apparently it was between this and it was between Don't Change by NXS. And once they got into um, the studio and gave this a bash, they were like, yep, that's the one. Um, Referring to it as a feel-good song. But then, of course, the video has this whole narrative in which Gwen Stefani is on trial for the murder of the rest of the band. One by one, she kills all three of the lads and is dragged off to the gas chamber. But uh, I felt for the time it was like very effective. No, they were always one of those strange kind of bands like in that they would always come and go um in like a fucking curl of smoke they would show up and like don't speak was like one of the biggest songs in the late 90s and you know, tragic kingdom the album that followed i remember that being in like lots of houses it wasn't quite david gray levels or anything but it was around and it had a a certain kind of physical impact and then some stuff here and there you know gwen stefani was like uh, she emerged as like the kind of dominant personality she's yeah very i was gonna say that video felt quite prescient not the gassing bit but the fact that she kind of Killed off the band, yeah. Killed off the band. <laughs> I guess so. Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, how how do we think she's done since that? I mean, like, the solo guys and everything else. I mean, it's she been She had okay. a lot of big hits. Yeah. I think she just, of her own uh, volition, was, like, stepped back from music for years and was just living her life. So I think she's kind of, her career is very much on her own terms, which is, is great. 
Um, but yeah, they always struck me as an interesting band because they started off as like a pretty hardcore ska band, right? I think. And they go Very back so, years yeah. and years. Um, they're almost like kind of mirror image of like the Red Hot Chili Peppers who started as like very funky and very niche and also Californian. I think that no doubt are Orange County, but then just increasingly became kind of quite mainstream and had massive hits and went more poppy and ballady and certainly worked for them. But uh, I was never the biggest fan. I was a fan of this cover. Uh, it does something different to the original, which feels very 80s and yeah, talk, talk. I mean, that was it in their period of like synth pop um, supremacy. But then obviously they got, you know, we had Zara on recently talking about how they got more experimental and created a few masterpieces that were far removed from this kind of thing. So, yeah, I wonder how No Doubt would have fared with like a song from like New Grass or something from the late 80s. It would have been very, very different. But yeah, this is like talk, talk, Mark One, a great synth pop band, but kind of very straight laced. Yeah, I mean, look, it's lean, it's mostly surface, and I, I think it just requires having good production and decent arrangement, but also her vocals are really well suited to it, I think, and managed yeah. to, to kind of drive it forward in that way. I just found it very kind of memorable. I think it has managed to kind of appreciate and value as well. Something of a cult, you know, kind of following for a song that did okay in the charts in both America and the UK, but wasn't a number one or anything, but like... I was found myself this week, you know, with the covers and it was between this and it was between Faith No More is Easy. And eventually I, I just just gave the nod to No Doubt because I do think that Gwen Stefani's vocal on it is especially winning. So that's my number four, yo. Um, So I have a similar kind of cover here in how it's trying to unlock something, some added power to like <clears throat> an early 80s, very of its time pop song. Um, This ushered in some lush synths and brought in a kind of old Letario on vocals. Yeah, Brian Ferry there doing Johnny and Mary, uh, a Robert Palmer song from, I think, 1980. Uh, it's actually a Todd Terge's song, uh, this cover. It was on his album. It's album time. Um, and then I think Brian Ferry was so enamoured with his performance that he put it on his own album as well. And it's it's kind of bringing like lounge music somewhere intergalactic and transcendent. And it's a nice character study of a song. Um, just kind of just like picking over the bones of not a great relationship. Almost fairy tale New York territory, but um, not everywhere and not annoying. Um, <laughs> and not offensive, which is crucial. And I think what Brian Ferry does is, you know, the the original is um, a young Robert Palmer doing a quite jerky, um, a spiky scented song that uh, like, sounds like it could have been played on a Commodore. And it's propulsive i don't think it taps into um the jaded <laughs> kind of nature of the lyrics which brian ferry does totally here just that kind of world weary voice even when brian ferry was like in his prime in the 70s and 80s he felt kind of out of time like he was that kind of that lover man that was slightly over the hill like a james bond character so i think he's great as like a narrator for this story of a couple where the fella is like getting on but still thinks like he's gonna be something and uh she's just trying to get through her day to day and i think 
Todd Turge's work is great. It's like these kind of evangelist synths that just take it somewhere else entirely. Uh, it's a sumptuous sound. It's really, really good. It kind of evokes that late period Roxy music sound of like Avalon and, you know, songs like More Than This when they had their like big commercial success in the 80s, which I think is probably underrated now because it was so successful, but it was like after Brian Eno left. So people were like, oh, they're not arty anymore. But actually, I think there's a lot of merit in those songs. And this totally evokes it in a really nice way. I fucking love more than this. I think it is underrated. I, I, I don't care how, you know, pop culture infused it is. It's just a great yeah. song. I can't confess to being a proper fan of Brian Ferry, Roxy Music, uh, but I, I guess my expectation of anything that Brian Ferry does is that it is absolutely awash with like emotive velvet. Like it's just kind of yeah, like, yeah. Like, like there's something He's kind trying of cast- to seduce you. But there's just also something kind of very melancholic and like cascading about it. And I wonder if it takes that level of, you know, um, established kind of wounded nature of his kind of character to work for a cover like this. I mean, like with covers, like so many of them are throwaway, right? So many of them are just like, oh, I, you know, I like that song. So here's a cover. I think it, I think it requires a certain level of projection, I suppose, not, not just from the artist, but certainly from the listener too it can be hard to like interlock them. I mean, like there's no reason why like a talented musician can't do a good cover of a good song. Like that seems almost too easy. Um, so therefore I just wonder if like, whether it's a Marky Smith or a Brian Ferry, like does it help if you're kind of not so much, you know, like I need to pick my words carefully here. Like it's not that Brian Ferry like represents like depressing loser lounge lizards, but he has a certain like, defeated quality i think to his vocals sometimes that i think actually managed to bring out a certain level of heart and i could hear yeah, it here totally. e- even in the snippet i'm like yeah well that's clearly like the man's that's lived a really point. and lost yeah you know? it's kind of yeah I, I was going to say that like even you know the time like his time in life when he tackled this song where he's like um 60s i think this is only a couple of years old so it feels more apropos that he is doing this song because it's already a character study it's not like you know, uh, Palmer's kind of his own feelings, his own personal recollections. I feel like Brian Ferry, who's lived a lot, probably has a lot of regrets singing this song about that couple. He can probably connect with it more than Robert Palmer did when he was a young dude just writing this kind of neat little story in a new wave song. So yeah, I think it's really fitting. Okay. So, I mean, I wonder if some songs are just like no-go zones. If it's like, don't cover that song. You, you, you couldn't possibly make it better you've no right to touch it. I'm not saying that this song is better than the original because that would be ridiculous, but I kind of love what they did with it. Number three. You want to feel how it feels. You want to know, know that it doesn't hurt me. You want to hear about the deal I Yeah, it's uh, Kate Bush's Exceptional Running Up That Hill, as covered by Placebo. Um, Placebo released this song a few times. It was like a bonus track on Sleeping With Ghosts, and then there was a covers, I think, an EP, and then there was an album, and uh, it just kind of like, I guess, gained a bit of a cult-like following of its own. I think Placebo 
Like they've done some good covers before and they can be a bit of fun in that regard. I'd argue Placebo are an underrated band. I've gone through phases with them here and there where like I find them to be incredibly intoxicating and then I just won't listen to them for like a fucking year. Um, this, of course, will uh, also be well known and I suppose fondly remembered and loved by professional wrestling fans. That's right. It's Dave's Wrestling Corner. Uh, this was used in a hype package for Shawn Michaels versus The Undertaker at WrestleMania 26 in which HBK's career was on the line versus the Dead Man streak. And uh, it's one of the great wrestling packages. I'm like, it's so good. It's up there with the Limp Bizkit My Way one for WrestleMania 17. It's one of those ones where I'm fully convinced you could show this like four to five minute clip to someone who fucking hates wrestling and they would want to see the match because the interweaving of the ridiculous drama with this gorgeous, gorgeous take on running up that hill. Some people have said it's depressing. Some people have, all, I think Enemy had a terrible line where it was like, well, if Kate Bush's song was about making a deal with God, well, this is more about a pact with the devil. It's like, deal oh, with the on. devil, like, like, yay! It's so stupid. But uh, I fucking love it. I think it has that extra level of elevation in its own kind of terms. Like, listen, it, it, it doesn't touch the original. It knows that, though. But I think it has a right to exist in its own kind of terms. It's an entirely different song to me, and I listen to both of them um, infrequently, but, you know, a fair bit, and I get different things from them. And this is one of the songs that I, you know, was in my head and didn't make it, but I was thinking, like, I hope to God Dave picks it so, like, we can chat about it. So thank you for picking it. Uh, No, I think it totally works. And speaking of wrestling, this also, of course, memorably soundtracked um, Ryan Atwood getting into cage fighting in one of the later seasons of The O.C. No way. After, yeah, spoiler alert, Marissa died and he went off the rails and Sandy had to find him and he was, uh, yeah, he started a new life as a cage fighter. Wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. Was over this, all the promos. Was this his walkout music or was this just used in the TV show? It was just used in every kind of moody scene of him like taping up his knuckles and bleeding in a... Uh, you know, a rat infested locker room as Sandy kind of drove around cedar parts of like Chino or whatever. <laughs> it was very evocative. <laughs> wow. Jesus Christ. Who knew that it actually had such crossover? But yeah, no, I I, I think it's really fucking good. And there's just something like Brian Malko's voice again, like perfectly suited to it, just has that kind of lilt, that kind of infe- like inflection. And uh, it's gorgeous. Again, yeah. you'd have to be a bad musician to miss with such source material. But I think Placebo managed to kind of make it their own a little bit. Yeah, nice. Um, He does have such a singular sound as well, which is like, yeah, sometimes it's in small doses, but it really packs a punch when you dip back in. Okay, I'm going to French it up a bit for my number three. Of course, I'd expect nothing less from you at this stage of the show. Let's dance, little stranger. Show me secret sins. Love can be like bondage. Seduce me. That was Nouvelle Vague with Dance With Me. Um, yeah, make anything a bit more Gaelic and I'm a sucker for it, really. And this this band uh, had a real moment in the sun last decade, um, or like two decades ago now, <laughs> probably is, bringing like this kind of continental, sophisticated, like indie sound to bear on like a range of like canon classics. 
Um, yeah, I think they emerged in like 2003. They did some kind of bossa nova twists on things as well. Quite loungy. And it totally wore out as welcome um, after a few albums. But when it worked, it worked. Um, and on this song, totally did it for me because it wasn't like, I think they initially emerged. I was just looking through how the, the, the kind of project got together. And it was two very French men who took their name from yeah, new wave, French new wave cinema. And uh, one of them, uh, Olivier was saying to his friend, Mark, um, I, I think Mark had the idea, this very strange idea of covering Love Will Tear Us Apart in a bossa nova version. I thought this idea was absolutely crazy, but very exciting. It just sounds so quaint now. But uh, yeah, they decided to get into the studio. They did the likes, they just can't get enough, Guns of Brixton. They did really kind of, as I say, canon songs, Blue Monday, Heart of Glass. And m- most of them didn't quite do it for me. Um and this was the start of the era of just doing like softly spoken covers of stuff and that has obviously worn itself out so much. But this hugely works for me because it's a song by a group called The Lords of the New Church um, who were like gothic rockers. They were like a, a kind of short-lived super group, I think, from the 70s. The original, which I don't listen to a huge amount, is uh, like it's the bones of a good song, but it's quite schlocky and it's trying to be a bit edgy and it sounds... Not all that great. And actually, the kind of, the essence of the song and the lyrics translated to this very French vibe, it makes it feel like, oh, it suddenly found its proper home. It was always supposed to be this version. It just totally works. It feels like something that came out in the 60s. It feels like something that Serge Gainsbourg could have written. So that's why it works for me. But yeah, the kind of subgenre around this band and some of the covers of the time that were quite verging on twee, it got a bit much, but this is the right side of kitsch. It just works totally for me. Yeah, I'm one of those people who definitely struggled. I would have heard, uh, I forget what it probably was, Love Will Tear Us Apart. And I was like, well, this is completely revolutionary. <laughs> it's just like that kind of level of, I've never heard anything like this before. And it did wear off pretty quick. And I think a problem as well was, I just feel like every shop I walked into in like 2005, 2006 or something, like this was playing. And it was kind of like, it had a nice moment. There was a nice kind of, you know, lilt to the whole thing. And it was very cute. And ultimately, I just found myself tuning out of it pretty quickly. I mean, like, I'm not against the concept, but I think if that's your gimmick. And again, like, oh, it totally, was, yeah. And again, it was. I mean, it was that different time. I, I mentioned earlier on how, like, the sad boy cover, the pop song, there was a time when it did feel kind of kind of cool and like new um and i remember very specifically like uh it was a guy called greg laswell it was on a bad tv show called damages he did like a mournful piano version of girls just want to have fun and i think it's probably like 2007 maybe and i was like this is incredible and of course now yeah, like, yeah. like it didn't take long it took very not a long amount of just time became a fucking ikea ad kind of thing yeah, yeah. oh yeah john lewis shit that kind of stuff john lewis, and I just, of course I just, I I would struggle with the general tweeness of this as well. I'm not rebelling against this this selection here whatsoever. I think the one that you chose in particular is very strong, but like, I'm surprised that you actually had the tolerance, you know? Um, I think it is because I wasn't aware of the original song. Like every time it was a more familiar song, it just felt like that kind of twee cover thing. But this just felt like an original song to me and it's totally different from the original. Um, so as I say, just the context was different. It's a strong song and it doesn't feel like a kind of performance. They sell it really well. They believe in it. But just so many iterations, as you say, and yeah, the gimmick wore off. But as a one and done, this would have been beautiful. And yeah, there was the, you know, the video accompanying it of like the Goddard film and like Band of Parish dancing and stuff. And it was just, it was a moment. And yeah, I still stick it on occasionally. It's good. 
It was a moment, man. Okay, number two for me this week. Uh, it's time to get into heavy hitter territory. I feel like I might have picked this in a top five before, but I can't quite recall which one. And it's kind of one of those unavoidable moments when you do a thing like this. But look, cliches are cliches for a reason. Things appear on this all the time for reasons. And like, I just can't look past this. There's just no way. And you could have it all. My empire of dirt. I will make you hurt If I could start again A million miles away I would keep myself I would find a way Johnny Cash there and one of his final farewells to the world that's Hurt from 2002 it is the course cover of the Nine Snails classic what more can be said about this what more can be said about Nine Snails what more can be said about Hurt that I haven't already said in this show alone uh, not a lot so I won't spend too much time on it but I will say that like it is that fucking good and I remember when this came out and when I was kind of um when I hadn't fallen in love with Nine Snails just yet I remember reading in a book there was a critique of this and saying how the original song wasn't actually up to that much snuff and Johnny Cash, quote, found the song. And I remember like throwing those words very obnoxiously, very edgy, fucking, you know, 2004 Dave or whatever it was, at someone, a big Nationals fan and like, you know, as a taunt or whatever. And I couldn't have been more wrong in the sense that actually, no, of course, the original is a work of absolute fucking genius and Trent Reznor's suffering and pain and, you know, developed into incredible art. But of course, Reznor himself has flat out famously said, no, song belongs to Johnny Cash now. He made it Mm -hmm. his own. And he did make it his own. It is that thing of like, it happens all the time. It happens every six months, like clockwork. People rave about this and they're like, they didn't, they don't know it's a cover, you know, because I guess, you know, that's just the way things, information can be received. Like, but there's always that (laughs) annoying back and forth. There's always the annoying versus thing and i don't feel like it's even fair to do the versus thing i think that this is from its from the timing of it appearing on you know american four the man comes around which is a great album overall by the way and has some really yeah, good stuff on it like I, I hung my head is amazing um it, like the opening track which the name escapes me right now even though i know it incredibly well it's fucking unreal i think it is the man comes around um incredible stuff in, in the twilight of johnny cash's life and i think there's there's there were reports that he was in such ill health at the time that like it was difficult to even record the songs and and get what they got but i think he was determined to power through the famous video directed by mark romanek of course depicts him you know the kind of the passing of time saying goodbye to his career and his life it's impossible not to get stirred up especially by those kind of closing notes which i just think are astonishing in their repetition and look it's always going to top these lists it's always going to be around it's the annoying bloke in the pub, but Jesus Christ, it is that good. Yeah, this was one of my, when I mentioned like a holy trinity earlier on, th- this is one of them. Can you guess the other two? Sure, well, just like I, I, I instantly feel come like, to mind. Well, don't even name them because I feel like my okay. next one is going to be one of them. So. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> we'll talk about it after. Um, so my next one is, and yeah, of course, I love that version so much. And it's just, it felt like doing it almost a disservice to put in this list because like what more can be said uh, but I'm glad you you did M- this one my number two is probably um, 
the most famous of my covers that I've picked, um, but I couldn't deny it because I just got sucked into listening to it a lot again over the past week and I remembered its power and here it is. Yeah, that's Song to the Siren um, from This Mortal Coil um, from 1984. And it's uh, it's a take on Tim Buckley's original, which I think came out in 1970. Um, His original was kind of willfully arty as well, um, as a lot of his stuff was. Um, There's actually a great acoustic version he does, which you can find on YouTube, which I think he was on The Monkeys Show. The Monkeys used to get on like kind of unknown artists at the time, as Tim Buckley was, and just give them a spotlight. And it's weird watching because it's just him doing this song with an acoustic guitar and he looks like a curly haired Jeff Buckley son and the voice is very similar and it's speaking of great covers and uh, that's one worth seeking out but yeah this is like Elizabeth Fraser, obviously from the Cocteau Twins it's basically a Cocteau Twins song uh, it was the founder of 4AD wanted to cover this he basically got a super group um, a label super group together just to do a one off single um, there was an A side the name of which escapes me right now and they needed a B side and Tim Buckley was one of his favourite artists he was like okay let's do this song we have to do this song and yeah it's just the power of her voice if the original is kind of like Tim Buckley talking about being beckoned uh, by the sirens um, to the shore she kind of just becomes the otherworldly kind of ethereal sirens and it's uh, it's weirdly discombobulating it was used of course um, famously or infamously in David Lynch's Lost Highway really powerful scene that's just you're not quite sure how you should feel about it but uh, it does things to you and yeah that's how I feel about this song I guess um I think Tim Buckley almost didn't release the original himself because the original has a weird line about being as puzzled as an oyster or something which people always kind of slag and it's it's changed here um and I think he was slagged by like a, a, the wife of one of his friends or something was like are you not going to change that lyric and he's like oh yeah it's a bit rubbish isn't it even though it's the best thing overall I've, I've written maybe I should just you know shelve it so it was shelved for a while and then it was kind of re-released as this experimental thing and just quickly forgotten about until this version and it's since become one of these songs where it's just like covered by a lot of people um none has got this there's a good Robert Plant version George Michael tackled it um but it's all about that kind of cocktail spin on this and totally haunting. The original is kind of perfect, but this is somehow improved on it. So, I mean, you know, I invoke professional wrestling. He invokes David Lynch because that's how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> at least at least once Fuck a month, if not, if not once every two weeks. Um, okay, right. Time to front up. You had a Holy Trinity. Johnny Cash Hurt was in there. Can you name the two other songs in your Holy Trinity that you left out? And we'll roll into my number one, which I'm pretty sure is going to be one of these. Yeah, so I just mentioned um, the late Jeff Buckley. So Hallelujah is one that's been talked about to that. Um, and then the other one would be Sinead. Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You. At number one for me this week, 
It's Sinead O'Connor and nothing compares to you. I'd be doing you a disservice. I'd be doing me a disservice. I'd be doing Sonic Architect Adam a disservice. I'd be doing the listener a disservice. I would be doing music itself a disservice if Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You was not, in fact, my number one. Because, again, it's it's to, to, to quote Triple H's old catchphrase, it's that oh. damn good. It's incredible. It's unbelievable. It's iconic in everything. It might be its, the best song ever. Like It's unbelievable. You know? <laughs> like from, from, from its presentation to its video to the vocal, oh my God, to the way the vocals are produced, the way they sit on the song, the fact that it was a throwaway song for Prince, essentially. It was part of his side project, The Family. It was on, I think, the only album they ever released and it was meant to be a filler track on the record. Sinead recorded it. She actually recorded it with the same producer that, no doubt, did that rehearsal of It's My Life with Nelly Hooper. Um, oh, yeah. And it went on to be like a massive fucking hit. I don't know about, I don't know what you can recall from the heady days of the Fitzpatrick youth, but I remember seeing this video everywhere. It was on every TV station. It was just constant yeah. again, way back when, VHS era, no fucking high speed music access. You know, it was, but it was always there. It was somehow always on. Uh, Sinead's floating fucking face, you know, it was just like this whole thing. It was just this instantly recognizable thing. And it took me a long time to kind of um, really love it, you know. I mean, even though it was it's clearly a classic, but there were some songs like Hole of the Moon by the Waterboys where, for whatever reason, I just rebelled against them and I didn't like them and I, I, I found them to be just annoying me. And someday it just eventually all clicked. And with this song, I, I can never see myself going back in the other direction. It's unbelievable. Her performance on The Late Late Show about a year ago at the stage is fucking incredible and so beautiful and so heartfelt. And I hate the fact that it led some a lot of idiots to fucking talk about her religion. It's just like, shut the fuck up and appreciate what you have. Um, Yeah. I mean, this is just next level. The feeling, the the many lives lived in this song and, and, and all the incredible heartbreak and the the slim possibility of hope. It's all here. It's why I love music. It's more than a cover. Like it, it, it is her own song. Now she has talked, of course, she had quotes back in the mid tens there about um, Prince calling her up and summoning her to her gaff and to his gaff and giving out to her for cursing. For swearing. Interviews. Yeah. yeah. And she was like foolish thing to say to an Irish woman. And she accused Prince of getting quite violent. And that whole thing is quite messy. Well, they, they like chased each other around a kitchen or something. It was this weird, almost like, yeah, I don't know what was going on there. Imagine that image, though. I mean, Jesus Christ. Um, There's like some weird Benny Hill thing, apparently, where she's like, I gave as good as I got. Like, I feel like she would have beaten up. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a bit more grim, though. But to this day, this is one of the tallest songs out there. It's incredible. Also, it's like, like, it's a commitment, you know, like, like it's like six minutes or so. And well, it's also like if you want to get if you want to wallow. Like, if yeah. you're like, okay, I'm ready to be sad. If you just stick this on, you're right there. Like, But you can't, you can't passively listen to it either, though, can you? Like, it's just such a force. It's an incredible yeah. force of nature, as is Sinead. 
I think it transcends covers in general. I think it is more so than the Johnny Cash one, which is amazing. This is just one of the greatest songs of all time. And again, listen, I know, obvious number one, blah, 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 blah. But like, if I didn't pick it, I would feel like I was letting everyone down. Craig didn't pick it. How do you feel? Um, yeah, probably had to be picked. Uh, yeah, you know, even beyond the performance, she does, there's a leap in notes on the chorus where she does a little falsetto thing and it's, it kind of makes the song, it just lands it completely and that's not in Prince's original. It just adds a kind of hook, an emotional hook. So yeah, stunning song. Again, I just put perimeters on myself. Another perimeter was I didn't pick anything from the 60s. How <laughs> <laughs> do I remember? Because I would have had to pick um, All Along the Watchtower by Jimi Hendrix and also you get into weird territory of like load, loads of artists suing each other's songs. Back then it was a different time. Uh, as we all know. Um, so I steered clear of that. So my number one is a way more recent cover. Um, and yeah, it's very no encore. Here it is. There are times when I find you want to keep yourself from me when I don't have this I think um I think we need a new sonic architect. I think I just saw Adam float into the heavens there as that played. <laughs> Frank Ocean, at your best, you are love. Uh parentheses, you are love. The opening track from Endless, the album that came before Blonde, which Adam recently finally secured on vinyl. Hooray to Adam. Um Dave already has it. I'm delighted for you boys. Yeah, I remember it was August 2016. Um Man, it was a hot one. I don't know. I woke up at about <laughs> four in the morning for my early shift at Newstalk, covered a business beat, and I realised that Frank Ocean had dropped new material. And I talked to one of our group chats, Dave, if you recall. I don't, actually. And I posted, I think I just posted Frank Ocean's name, all caps, like repeatedly. <laughs> My friend Josh was also up because he was in Toronto and he was also being very excited. So I remember like totally half asleep, maybe on four hours sleep, dragging myself to the bathroom with headphones on to get ready for work in total darkness with the start of this playing on a kind of dodgy-ish stream. And it was so, it was like I was still dreaming. <laughs> it was such a weird first exposure to it. That's beautiful. Um, I didn't know. I didn't know the Isley Brothers original, uh, which came out in 76, and it was then covered by Aaliyah uh, in the 90s. It was on her debut album, um, which I think Frank was paying homage to. Um, more pointedly, he, he stuck up a Tumblr uh, cover of it, because of course he did, uh, to mark her anniversary a couple of years before Endless came out, and then kind of reworked it as this spacey, very sparse um it just strips it down to its bare essentials, strips everything away. And if you hear the original, it's very like bedroom R&B. It's obviously like a great song underneath it, but it's kind of like, you, it could just wash over you because it's quite tropey and it's just one of those R&B songs where it's almost too sweet. And it's, um, I think it doesn't do justice to the amazing lyrics, which are about kind of um, 
love and all its kind of ugliness, I guess, and just accepting people that you've been with for a long time for all their faults and knowing like that key line of just like the potential of people and focusing maybe on the best things they do and what they're capable of and the kind of light in the world, which I think is an important message, Dave, at the moment. Um, I think it's a really sweet kind of message of support to like, you know, unconditional love and I know what you're capable of. I'll be here for you. And the way Frank delivers it is just so heartfelt and incredible. And yeah, uh, a great start to Endless, which is a great album and a bit in the shadow of Blonde for understandable reasons, but a great listen. Yeah, well, first of all, I thought you might have gone Moon River. Um, and I guess... Uh, oh, yeah. It's, it's another peak. of all... Yeah, endless, right? Because, I mean, primarily it's a visual album. So, like, unless you have it kind of downloaded as an MP3 or whatever, you might not throw it on too often. I haven't revisited it all that much. And I, I always love the idea of doing it. And I probably will now that we're talking about it. But, yeah, I mean, I know it's the ultimate get-out-of-a-contract record. And who knows how much he even loves it. But, I mean... I'm not suggesting it was phoned in, but if it was, Jesus Christ, right? And I know, listen, yeah. no I don't encore, think it's Frank in. Ocean, Peyton, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, Dahi, yeah. Dahi's taking his headphones off right now and being like, for fuck's sake, lads. But Endless is amazing, right? And no one ever really talks about it. Yeah, because it was, you know, obviously quickly followed up with Blonde. It was him getting out of the contract. But I think, no, I think he pour, poured his heart and soul into it. Like really listening to it, it does not sound phoned in. There's quite experimental passages. Um, I think Blonde was more him consciously being like, okay, this is going to be maybe a big album and making some concessions to that just in terms of the pop stuff he was doing. But the chances he takes on Endless are great. The way the track's flowing into each other. Often I'm more in the mood for Endless and I'll just throw it on. Um, I did actually buy... Um, I got the I got the visual... I got like the DVD because I got the vinyl for someone else and um, you get like a download code with that. So it's actually one of the few albums that's on my phone. So if I don't have a decent connection or something, like I can actually just throw on Endless, which means I listen to it quite a bit and it's definitely worth a revisit. And yeah, I love this cover. Gorgeous. Okay, that was our covers for this week. Best that we think in the world. But there are, of course, lots of covers. It's hard to just narrow it down. I enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah, they're all lovely covers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this. Um, yes, listen, my brother, the next time I talk to you, it's going to be the end of the year. It's going to be the end of year season. And of course, we'll get our Q&A episode recorded around that point as well. Yeah. How are you feeling? I know you're fucking stressed. I know you're busy, but you're, I know, I'm feeling great. No, you're going to things are good. But. Yeah, we nearly made it through the year and uh, I'm looking forward to those episodes. I'll be back rested, refreshed and raring to go. How are you feeling about end of year in terms of the lists and all that kind of stuff? I've started taking a look. I think it's going to be tough. It's been a good year, I reckon. Um, but yeah, this is always the nightmare stage of like trying to fucking figure it out. It's a lot of work, listener. Shall we reveal who's joining us for those episodes? Why not? Do the honour, Sir Dave. So, because, like, no encore since its inception, and we've kind of changed the format in terms of end of year here and there, we find that it benefits from a third voice. So we had Dahi last year, of course, and Cullen before that. And this year, Craig and I were like, should we get a third person in? And, you know, what's the best way to do this? And it was kind of unanimous. Like, it wasn't even too much of a conversation. It was just like, nah, like, this makes a lot of sense. Um, Sonic Architect Adam is pointing at himself right now and I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm about to break his heart. Sonic Ar- Ar- Architect Adam will, will, will always be there in spirit no matter what we do and is welcome to weigh in anytime I'm he wants. I'm jumping off the call. <laughs> However, <laughs> joining us for our end of year episodes, lending her voice is a course, no encore's number one super sub, the incredible, incomparable Zara Hederman and I'm very, very excited to see what she'll have to say about everything and I do think it's going to like widen the scope a bit and kind of give us a bit more to consider 
So yeah, and and of course, look, it's Zara, so it's probably going to get feisty as well. But that's part of the fun. <laughs> so am I. It's going to be great. And yeah, I think the the way we've done it in recent years works really well. And you can't do it with two people. But also, Zara is you know very fine music journalist that is week in week out going through albums, reviewing albums for various publications and on broadcast. And she's just like. I was going to say safe pair hands, but like, no, she knows the insides and outsides of like every big release this year. So um, it'll be great to get her takes on a lot of stuff. It's going to be fun. I love, how, like you, I love how you've gone into pragmatic football manager post-match interview mode here. Like this is incredible. <laughs> do a job. <laughs> it's going to be great. I'm really great hyped about it. <laughs> you get yourself a, take it, like get, get your break, man. Take, take your time, chill the fuck out. We're going to be back soon. Thank it's going to be amazing. Thank We're going to be reunited and it will feel so good. This episode of No Encore was engineered by Sonic Architect. Adam Shanahan, who we also adore to pieces. Lots more to come this month, guys. Like I say, bonus episode landing on Monday on Patreon. It's our Songs of 2019 OG version. There's a No Popcorn coming next Wednesday. Another regular episode next Friday. Our Q&A episode will, will land around Christmas, but in between that and kind of after next Friday, it's straight into end of year mode. So stay with us. A lot more to happen this month. Thank you again so much to everyone who supports the show. We love you to bits. Craig, have a great time. We'll talk to you soon, man. <laughs> this was your chance to say something I was like trying to I sign stopped up. the recording there was no point <laughs> I was thinking he's turned off his mic alright my name is Dave Hanrady his name was Craig Kipatrick back next week bye 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 this podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network Celebrate this July 4th with a special presentation of A Capital Fourth. Join your host, Vanessa Williams, with performances from Sea to Shining Sea, starring Jimmy Buffett, Gladys Knight, Alan Jackson, Cynthia Erivo, Pentatonix, Renee Fleming, Train, Jennifer Nettles, Mickey Guyton, Jimmy Allen, Ali'i Cravalho, Laura Osnes, Ali Stroker, and the greatest live fireworks display in the USA. It's A Capital Fourth, sponsored by the Boeing Company and American Airlines, Sunday, July 4th, 8, 7 Central only on PBS. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. 
Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-M-A-L-I-B-U dot com, code GLOW.